0: I'll give you um, kind of an overview of Amos 1, and we're going to start with 2.4. Now, did you watch, did anybody watch a horse race yesterday? How fun. I'm I'm a huge horse racing fan just because I spent 10 years in Kentucky probably, but but anyway. The horse I'm going to tell you about was known in some ways as the fat yearling. The freak. Um, this was a horse that just didn't want to run. Within one year, this horse would establish themselves as one of the greatest horse races to set foot on the track. Won the first 10 starts with ease. Now, um, uh, this is a place that's very near and dear to my heart. Haven't been there in years and years. But, uh, when, but this horse was Kind of raised on Claiborne Farm, and uh, began to train there. This was outside of Paris, Kentucky. We were living in Paris, Kentucky when Heather was born, and we went to Claiborne often um, to, to see the horses out there. There was no holding this this horse back once they got onto the track. It was like. The horse knew it was a race horse and knew what the job was and the, had a pedigree in their heart to beat everybody else, to come in first, to win every time. It was just kind of motivated to do that. People kind of laughed this horse off. But the ones who did hadn't, hadn't seen him run yet. They kept saying, well, it's just too fat. Um, uh, the girth measuring 75 and a half inches. But meanwhile, this horse was setting all kinds of records um, and then pranced off the track like they were ready to go around again. I kind of felt that yesterday. Um, Jerry and I were talking about that. I kind of felt that about it. American Pharaoh, I think he could have gone around again. Well, for the rest of the two-year-old season, this horse denied any challenger. Equal track records broke many of them. One of the toughest of all horses to beat, um, uh, this horse just didn't know how to lose. And here's the kicker. It was a filly, a girl. You ever heard of Ruffian? One of the most famous horses of all the time. You don't hear much about Ruffian because she, she was a girl. Um, her three-year-old season was amazing as her previous one. Frank Whitley, who was her trainer, started her off in an allowance race where she won almost, by almost five lengths. Her next start was the Comely Stakes where she won by eight. She won, went on to, we, to, to uh, sweep uh, the New York Philly Triple Crown, which is almost as big a deal as the, as the, uh, the regular Triple, triple Crown. Uh, swept the New York Philly Triple Crown, um, won the Acorn, the Mother Goose, the Coaching Club, American Oaks. But the question was, could she beat the boys? Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but in 1975, they, a great match race was set where Ruffian would race against the Kentucky Derby winner from that year. Uh, his name is Foolish Pleasure. And there was, this was such a wonderful horse that they thought, well, maybe she can beat the boys. So they, they, it was kind of a big deal. A lot of people who don't normally watch horse racing watch this. Bill, did you watch it? you kind of, you kind of shaking your head like you might have. I can't remember if I did or not, but I'm going to figure I did. Um, uh, it, so that it was just a two horse race. They take off. It's only a matter of seconds before they were going head to head. Ruffian sticks her nose in front. The opening quarter was running 22 and one fifth. At this time, Ruffian started pulling away from foolish pleasure. Anybody in here knows the rest of this story? Well, the rest of you are not going to like it, but, uh, anyway, she's a head by a head and then by a neck and then by half a length, Suddenly the jockey hears a snapping sound. Both jockeys heard it. Um, Foolish pleasure was then out in front by a length and by two and by three, and the announcer called out, Ruffian is broken down. But she kept on running. She ground her leg into the track. By the time she was pulled up, her hoof dangled uselessly, and it was all they could do to just get her off the track. She was buried about 9 p.m. that day. With her nose... Pointed toward the finish line at Belmont. That's she was, if you, if you were if you were there yesterday, you could have seen where they bury gruffy Could have been the great, may have been the greatest of all time. Um, Steve and I think we know who is the greatest of all time. I think Secretary was the greatest athlete of all time. Here's my question: Isn't it a tragedy? When someone starts off so well, only to for things to end painfully going wrong. Well, I really believe that story is told in the book of Amos, in Amos' uh, prophecy and preaching to the nation of Israel. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Amos. Amos was a shepherd. He was a fig picker also, okay, a fig picker. He picked figs, okay. I I really, I really, Pat, had the thought that I was going to bring a bunch of fig Newtons in here today and set them on every table. So just to illustrate, uh, you owe these to Amos, but um, he was a layman. Amos was called to speak and prophesy and preach, but he was called from his role as a a steward of fig trees and as a shepherd. Um, he was um, kind of a kind of a major player, even though considered a minor prophet. Now, in order to understand what Amos is talking about, we got to do a little bit of Israelite history. Uh, you probably remember the greatest king of Israel was probably whom. David, I think it's kind of clear. If you ask, if you stop, you know, we've got all these people coming back from Israel uh, this week. If you stop one of them, tap on the shoulder, or if they stop somebody on the street in Jerusalem and said, Who is the greatest king of Israel? I think 10 out of 10 are going to answer David. David was succeeded by whom? Solomon. What you need to remember is it went quickly south after that. What you need to remember is that Solomon's son um, Rehoboam followed the advice of his young advisors instead of, of the older folks in the crowd and began to levy a heavy taxation against the nation of Israel in the result of the civil war. Literally, the ten, um, uh, 10 northern tribes of Israel seceded from that union, and for the rest of um uh, of either kingdom, there was division. And uh, they never kind of patched all that up. So for most of the Old Testament, or at least half of the Old Testament, and certainly through the preaching of the prophets, you've got the northern kingdom that's called Israel. It's really the ten northern tribes. And then you've got two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And since Judah was m- much bigger than Benjamin, that the southern two kingdoms uh, two tribes kind of took the name on Judah. So you got Israel in the north, Judah in the south. At, there are two reasons why we study so much about Judah. For one thing, um, uh, David was from the tribe of Judah, and therefore the son of David that you and I worship and pray to was uh, from the tribe of Judah. And that the second thing is that certainly they were in power pretty well at the time of, um, of the New Testament. That that name Judah, or the tribe of Judah, or uh, the nation of Judah, being shortened by the New Testament days to Jews. Kind of a kind of an offhanded thing that poor we, but you hear it all through the New Testament. We use it still today. Now, Amos comes on the scene, um, uh, hundreds of years later. If if the nation divided in the nine hundreds or so. Amos is going to come on the scenes in the 700s. It's usually believed that Amos prophesied about 760 BC. Uh, How we know that is because he's going to to identify who was king in both kingdoms as he begins in Amos 1.1. You can kind of read that uh, to find out. Uzziah was king in Judah and Jeroboam II was reigning Israel. So we've got a place Place it chronologically. Now, uh, Amos's book is third in the arrangement of the 12 minor prophets. Why are they called minor prophets instead of major prophets? It literally has to do with how many chapters in the book, how thick the book was. Um, um, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, I'm, I'm reading through Ezekiel right now. It's a, a rather thick book. Uh, the minor prophets were shorter. But Amos was the first in chronology. So he's going to be the first one to talk here. Uh, even though he's kind of third in the list I hope you've found his little book by now um, uh, now here here's how I want to walk us through the first chapter okay there are there are there's a formula here that we want to look at a little bit we're going to look at it in just a minute but but there are six nations whom uh, Amos calls out with a judgment from God Um and uh, you can see them there as you read through chapter 1. I put the verses there, 1, 3, 6, 9, 11, 13, 21. If we read through that, you're going to see various uh, kingdoms that are being kind of judged here. Um, so we've got Aram or Syria. You've heard about the Arameans or the Syrians. That's the first one. Uh, Philistia or the Philistines is number two. The Phoenicians, that's Tyre and Sidon. Over in that area, that's the third. And then there are, then he's going to turn and, uh, and God is going to condemn uh, three other nations that actually have a lot closer tie to Israel. Uh, he's going to begin with, um, uh, in, in chapter one there, he's going to begin with, um, um, I'm, I'm looking for my list, sorry. Don't want to get them out of order. Edom. Now, who was Edom? Those were the children of Esau. So really, these are all cousins. Okay? Then he's going to pronounce uh, a judgment against um, against the um, um, Ammon and the Ammonites. Now, what you need to, if you want to go back and read, a not very pleasant part of the Bible, I think it's about in Genesis 19, you'll find that Ammon was a son of Lot. Okay? Illegitimately. Same thing with the last of this group that is uh, uh, condemned, and that's Moab. Moab was another kind of cousin here, but uh, Moab was another son of Lot. And again, an illegitimate um, 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 birth there. This is all that sickening thing that happens after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, uh, and Lot is made to get drunk. And his daughters come into him. These are those two boys that are born. And their tribes. Well, the Israelites had problems with with the Ammonites and the Moabites for the rest of time. For the rest of kind of recorded Old Testament history. So we've got that. We've got all these kind of predictions and all these condemnations going on in chapter 1 by Amos against these tribes of people. Many of them that were kind of fairly close uh, to Israelites, but they've been really hard on them. Then... Where our text begins today in chapter 2 verse 4, what you've got to kind of envision here is that those living in Judah are kind of drumming their fingers and they're probably saying, yeah, get him, get him, go Amos, go Amos, until verse 4 of chapter 2. Bob, could I get you to read verse 4 and verse 5? Hey, it was all right when Amos was talking bad about the Ammonites and the Moabites and, and the, uh, um, uh, those, the Phoenicians and all those, right? But who's he talking about here? Us. Us. Now, he uses a formula here, and he uses it all through chapter 1, and he's going to use it again here in chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 4. He does this thing, if your Bible's printed like mine... Uh, in 2-4, and there's another place we're going to see it in just a few minutes. Uh, he's going to say, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Uh, you ever done that and said, you know what, there were three times. No, there were four times. That's kind of what he's saying. It's literally the, the, the image here, and it becomes part of a kind of a literary pattern that Amos uses in his sermon here. Because all through chapter 1 and through chapter 2, he's saying, for three sins, now four. The Lord has got an issue with Moab. For three sins, no, it's four. The Lord has got an issue against um, Ammon. For three sins, no, four. The Lord has got an issue against Edom. And, and by the way, those who originally heard it are saying, yeah, go get them, Ammon. Until you get to over in chapter 2 and he says, for three sins, no, four. Judah, you're indicted. That's hometown crap, all right? So the nation of Judah is in for a surprise here. That's what goes in that first blank. Now, I find it kind of interesting. Would somebody make your way, I know this is going to be at the other end of your Bible. Somebody go to 2 Peter 3 and prepare to read verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. And yes, I did some checking after I messed the numbers up last week. There is a 2 Peter. Okay. What did I ask you to do? Go to... 1 Corinthians 13, 46 or 1 Corinthians 46 or something. I can't remember what I did last week. All right. 2 Peter 3, 9. Who will get that? Thank you, Ruth. If you'll get that, we'll hang on to it. We'll get there in just a minute. Now, um, the favored nation of Judah, you've got to argue, this is the favored people of all the favored people. This was a nation from whom uh, David was born, from whom Solomon was born, from whom in uh, a few 700 years later, the Messiah will be born. They're looking for that. This is the favored nation of Judah. But you know what? God has drawn a couple of lines in the sand, and one in particular. You shall have no other gods before me. And Judah crossed the line. It's a big deal. And so... God's condemnation is now coming on them and his warnings are, you better get this right. If there's anything you better get right, it's who you worship. Can I tell you that? That's not just a message to ancient Judah or Israel. If there's anything you better get right, it's who you're gonna worship. That's the line in the sand. Occasionally you will hear somebody like Marty say to us, there are lots of things that that we'll leave open to debate. But you've got to do, there's only one thing that we can do with Jesus. We've got to continue to be a Christ-centered church, he's going to say. There's a line in the sand there, and I'm happy that there is. So if there's anything that's important, it's in deciding, determining who I'm going to worship. And that was God. That was God's ultimate line in the sand. And not only had Israel crossed it, by the time Amos is writing, there are centers of worship in Israel. In uh, Dan and in Bethel, and uh, in both of those houses of worship in the north, there are golden calves to be worshipped. Wow. Now, by the way, how even creative was that? Anybody that's read the book of Exodus knows that's kind of been there, done that. We've done that before. Right? That wasn't even, um, you know, when I think of worship trends and those kind of things today, that wasn't even creative. They're just doing what they've done before, right? So there's, but that's in the north. Surely they're getting it right in the south, and the truth is no. Now, what you and I've got to know is when the Lord draws a line in the sand, and when he then um, appoints a prophet like our buddy the fig picker Amos, Appoints a prophet or a preacher to warn us. It's motivated by love. It's out of love. I want you to hear how Paul says it to Timothy when he's talking about in the context of condemnation. He um, he says, but this is why. Ruth, would you mind reading Second Timothy three nine? Would you hang on there just a minute? Because I may want you to read it again. It begins by saying, The Lord may appear to you to be slow, but He's going to keep His promise. You know, there are a lot of times when that brings me great comfort, and there are a lot of times when it makes me shake in my boots. The Lord has drawn a line in the sand, and He's going to demand justice, and it's coming. You may not see it soon. You may not see it in your lifetime, but it's coming. But the end of that, read the second part of that because it's so beautiful the way Paul describes it to Timothy. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want anyone to be um, condemned to, to a a godless eternity. Um, You and I have have had a conversation about this with somebody we dearly, dearly love who's kind of getting this confused in their minds. God doesn't want anybody to perish, Paul says, but everyone to come to repentance. And he's made provision for that. And one of the provisions is simply, folks, his absolute patience. He can wait. He's not in a hurry. Now, so this surprise, uh, this message is a surprise. The second half of uh, verse four um, uh, talks about their Judah's special relationship with with uh, the Lord. Um, uh, let me let me go back to um, to verse four. If I can find it. Uh, Because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, their lies have also led them astray, those after which their fathers have walked. Now, you've got to realize there's a a good uh, relationship established with Judah from the beginning. Uh, Among other things, the temple is there. Jerusalem is in this southern kingdom, right? The temple is there. Bethlehem is there, you know, for which is important to us. So the idea here is, that there is a special relationship, not only, not only there's this special relationship with Judah that uh, they ought to be reminded of, but the temple itself ought to be a constant reminder of that special relationship with God. You can put the word relationship in the next, in the next blank. Um, uh, it's interesting here that when he talks about all these physical atrocities that have taken place in the first chapter with all these other nations. There's none of that that's mentioned here, at least yet, um, against Judah, in the indictment against Judah. But the issue here is uh, against God's law, how they worship. Frankly, who they worship. But it's supposed to be, theirs is supposed to be a special relationship, and it's just gotten really goofed up. Now, In verse 5, he's going to predict fire, okay? Now, the truth is that that Judah and both Judah and Israel have been victimized before. The word victimized goes in that next blank. They've been victimized before uh, by all of their neighbors and by some that weren't even neighbors, by Egypt and, um, you know, others. They've been victimized before. They kind of know how that's going to be by Arabs and Egyptians. Even Israel in the north has victimized them a little bit. And, uh, But he's going to refer here in verse 5, if you'll read that again uh, to yourself while I'm talking, he's going to refer to 175 years in the future. This is a prediction. And he's going to be talking about a group of people that they've never even heard of yet called the Babylonians. And when he predicts fire, they're going to get fire. That temple in which they worship every, every feast day, and in which the priests do their work and do the sacrifices once a year and all that, that temple will be gone in 175 years, burnt by the Babylonians who are going to destroy Jerusalem. So this is kind of a new day. It's kind of a new prediction. Jerusalem's going to fall. Now, notice as we get into verse 6, this 3, no, 4 formula returns. And we're going to Talk now not about Judah in the south, but he's going to turn his attention in his message to Israel in the north. Now, what you need to know is uh, is Amos is from the tribe of Judah, but he's traveled north to share his message. Now, let's read. Somebody go 6, 7, and 8. Okay, I'll try to explain some of that, but what we need to kind of know at the outset is he's turned his his message to God's wrath against Judah and Jerusalem. Now north to that kind of nation that never had a good king through their whole history, the nation of Israel, that kind of divided northern kingdom now of Israel, the one that I said have set up two different houses of worship, and there's paganism going on in both of them, idolatry going on in both. And he turns kind of this this message toward them, and he's in that region. Now, I want you to go over to chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse 10. Here's the issue. What is the problem here? As God turns his message toward the north, what kind of a problem does that present for Amos? Somebody go to 7 and read verse 10. Now, one of the translations I read this week said this. Literally said, "Amos, get out of town." Amos is in the north, prophesying against the north. Now, that's a problem in itself. But what's the what's the other problem? Okay, he's a Texan in Oklahoma. (laughs) Sorry, John. He's a Texan in Oklahoma. You know, he's he's a Sooner in Stillwater. He's Okay, He's from the south, but he's prophesying to the north, and they don't like it. It's a wonder he came out of here with his skin. Who are you, Amos? You're just a sheep herding fig picker. Almost said, you know, something else. <laughs> Got to watch your language here, don't you? <laughs> a fig picker. <laughs> All right? Now. And by the way, this is taped. so I'm, um, um, mm-hmm. Now, as he starts into this, you remember I said there are kind of seven nations that are being condemned here. Well, this is kind of 7A or 7 plus 1. See, God really sees, still sees his people as one people. But he turns this toward those ten tribes. Um, uh, Estella, can I go back to you? Read through 13. Go back to 10 and then read on through 13. Chapter 7, 10 through 13. Yes, ma'am. Yep, give us contact. Bethel was one of those houses of worship. What are they saying? There's the the area where they're saying, you know what? You're a southerner. Go back home and go back to tending sheep and picking figs. Did I say it right that time? They don't want to hear it. What you need to know is if you look at the detail of of Amos' message in seven, that's recounted in seven, every one of the things he predicts happens. Every one of them. But they just don't want to hear it. Now, so, so the idea here is he's going to condemn some of the practices that are going on in Israel. Now, look at verse 7. Uh, we're back in chapter 2. Look at verse 7. They're going to mention several things. Those who after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn away uh, turn aside the way of the humble and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name now if you look at verse 6 the end of verse 6 he says i will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals so there is an indication here that the north has gotten involved in slavery all right so if if you look at your outline there besides the slavery of verse 6 there are other things that God indicts them for. All right. First of all, He is talking about justice being denied the poor. Now, way back to Deuteronomy 15, God is required for the nation, for His people, for the nation of Israel, to care for the poor. Okay. The image here, if you look at it in verse seven, um, uh, they they uh, walk, they trample on. Like the dust of the ground, the helpless, the poor—you kind of catch that here. Now, I gotta ask just briefly: How does this? This doesn't still happen today, does it? Where justice is denied the poor? You could argue, and and this is a huge um, uh, political hot button. You could argue that this is one of the problems in the U.S. today and one of the problems in some of our big cities is, is a lot of the, them are saying in places like Ferguson, Missouri, is justice is denied the poor or, or maybe somebody of another racial background. Now, whether or not you agree with that or not, that's kind of what's being claimed. Look, look at the second thing. So justice is denied the poor. There's no justice even in court, they're saying. Now, the, the third instance he uses... Is is really obvious here, um, um, in, in in heinous. Now the person who's being talked about, interestingly, in verse eight, um, uh, sorry, verse seven. It's 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 a man and his dad who are abusing the same girl. Some people kind of uh, will translate this word prostitute but it's clear it's not a prostitute because because Amos uses the word prostitute later on in his book and this ain't the word this is a servant girl there's abuse going on in the house with someone and who can't defend themselves someone who is being exploiting exploited a servant here The corruption here is obvious. And this has happened with the group of people who were once known as God's people. God is crying out for justice. And Amos is his mouthpiece here. Now, verse 8 is kind of different. There's a different kind of corruption talked about here. Let me read it to you again. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. Okay, now... That is being talked about. is talk, being talked about here. I gave you a reference over in Deuteronomy twenty four. There's a provision, in Deuteronomy twenty four. If you got nothing left but the clothes on your back, and you hock it to pay a bill or to buy food. Okay. The issue is, uh, I see Jan. I see Jan um, wagging her head. I come to Jan. and I say, Jan, you got a little money? I am <laughs> tapped out. I'm going to sell my. I'm going to hock my clothes to you. To buy food. So I take off my robe and my tunic and there we go. Well, there's a provision in Deuteronomy 4 that when it comes time for an evening, Jan is supposed to give me my clothes back so that I don't freeze to death overnight. Okay? And then the next morning she'll be knocking on the door saying, okay, where's my collateral? So the idea, put the word collateral in there. The idea is, the corruption here has to do with collateral and a provision in the Old Testament. Okay? Again, justice denied. This is the way it's supposed to be, but it's not being taken care of. So it's it's a kind of a denying what's what, uh, supposed to happen with collateral. And then the second issue in verse 8, I'll read on. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. The idea there is often uh, if there is some fine to be levied, All right. Um, If there's there's a fine here uh, to be levied, then um, um, uh, the court system can condemn an innocent person and require payment on a fine with whatever they have available. So the assumption here in the latter part of verse eight is what they're paying their fine with is wine. That's all they've got. And what's happening in the precincts of these houses of quote worship is. As soon as you leave, after paying your... Now, by the way, this may be the first reference to fine wine. (laughs) (laughs) I give give wine for fine, all right? You didn't think that, did you? So you got to come to Sunday school. You learn something every time you come to Sunday school. Uh, But what happens is the minute they leave the temple, the, the... precincts of this house of worship, <clears throat> those who are in charge, the priests, open the bottles and drink them. Get drunk on them. It's supposed to be God's stuff, right? Not happening that way. Again, a flat denial of judgment and of justice. Years ago, I was, uh, Christy, up by your place. Uh, in the cabin. And uh, and we drove way up in the mountains in a place where I probably shouldn't have been. I did have four-wheel drive, but I probably shouldn't have been up there anyway. And uh, uh, I was a little cocky with this little four-wheel drive vehicle I was driving. Anyway, I was up there, and there was a thicket of aspen trees through which a couple of deer ran. And I looked back through there, and I thought, how did they get between those trees? You remember that? Yes. It was just that thick. Well, I did some reading this week, and what I recognized is a truth that I never have never known before. The truth is, one of the reasons that aspen uh, groves seem to be so thick is uh, in many ways, when you look at a group of aspen trees, you're only looking at one tree. Somewhere in the center of that group of trees is a core tree from which complex root systems extend, sometimes for miles. From those roots sprout the other trees. So for what looks like several aspen trees above the ground is really only one below the ground. Because of this shared root system, a grove of aspens is difficult to remove permanently as long as the root system remains intact underneath the ground. I guess if you really want to get rid of an aspen grove, you got to find that one tree. Isn't that the way it is with Sin? Isn't there a taproot of injustice and corruption? Um, What's going on in the nation of Judah and Israel could be traced back to a single root system, a disregard for God and his law. Now, here's what I want to end with today. What is at the root of injustice in our world and in my heart? How can I ensure that I live justly? First of all, I think I just want to begin with the thought, and I want to just plant it, and I'm going to kind of move on. But I think I've got to remain humble. I've got to recognize that God's in charge, not me. I've got to recognize that I don't have it all figured out sometimes. And so I think it sometimes begins with this issue of humility, whether or not I feel like kind of I'm in charge. It certainly was that way with them. Now, but secondly, and I want want to kind of tease you with a thought. This is not unique with me, but it has kind of dogged me ever since probably Tuesday when I I first started reading through this material. If I want to live my life justly, and if I want to live my life free uh, from uh, the worship of others, okay, remember I said early on, one of the things we got to figure out is who to worship and that he will have no rival. Then one of the things I've got to kind of figure out, uh, on, on February 2012, the director of, the council, of counseling in a nonprofit organization in Houston confessed to lying about his military record. He had claimed to have received a silver star and to have served in, mil- in multiple combat missions in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Africa, and South America. We hear these stories every once in a while. He supposedly had re- recovered from PTSD because of all that. When he was pressed by a reporter to produce evidence of his claims, he confessed to making the whole thing up. Now, what happened, though, in his city is it crushed the spirits of those who'd come to think of him as a hero. Now, that idolatry that we've been studying today isn't just an interesting manifestation of ancient history. We create modern idols as well. And I kind of want to kind of deal with this through this series I don't want to dismiss the idea that even I might have an idol in my own life. Here's, here's what I want you to put at the end of your, your outline. I need to regularly ask myself, if I want to live as a person of justice and a person rightly tuned, whose heart is rightly tuned toward God, I've got to regularly ask myself, what or who are my, this, this, again, it's not my my term, it's what I read this week, who are or what are my Functional saviors. Get the idea? I may say I serve God and I worship God, but I'm really depending on something else. Now you fill in that blank. What is it that I might be depending on instead of God? I'm going to tell you. Gary Mathena said it 20 or more years ago. When it comes to the place he's all you've got, you're going to find he's all you need But the truth is, I constantly am trying to replace him with something else. I'm not very far from the people to whom Amos spoke to begin with. Okay, we'll go to chapter 5 next week. I'll see you there.